Less than 40 Black-owned companies have revenues in excess of $100 million. In a country where there are 47 million Black people. So when we think about institutional structures, right? If we, if we look at the origins of our institution, it's clear to understand why it would be. But I'm a solutions-oriented kind of gal. So this is where my advice to the Fortune 100 um, listener comes in. And also it is rooted in now 17 years of what I would call supply chain diversification. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource, whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hello, Lead the Team Nation. Wow, you're going to love this one today. I've got Selena Cuff, who's the president of Sodexo Magic, a joint venture between NBA legend Urban Magic Johnson and Sodexo. Sodexo Magic is comprised of 1,700 U.S. client sites, 6,500 employees in partnership with Sodexo's business lines and senior leaders. And also, as if that's not enough, she is co-founder of a global wine importer, Heritage Link Brands, with her husband, Karee Cuff. They discovered that only 2%, that's right, just 2% of South Africa's $3 billion wine industry was actually owned by Black South Africans. And as CEO of Heritage Link Brands, she now runs the largest import wine business of these wines and bringing them to audiences to you and me and around the world. Selena, and I got to keep rolling with this because this is just going to blow your mind. Selena also serves on the audit committee for the Harvard Business School African American Alumni Association. She's chair of the nominating and governance committee for the Harvard Business School Women Student Alumni Board and is member of the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank 12th District Economic Advisory Council. In addition to all this, she actually sits on the Overseas Studies Advisory Council at Stanford University. That's where I got Harvard and Stanford, uh, and Stanford represented here. And she's vice president emeritus of the Global Alumni Board of the Harvard Business School with degrees from Stanford and MBA from Harvard University. Holy smoke, Selena. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Ben. It's so fun to be here. Man, I, I this is just like, I, I will sometimes we like to bold, like all the words that are going to kind of jump out at people when I'm, when I'm reading the bio. And the whole thing is practically bolded, uh, reading, <laughs> reading your bio. But uh, let, so, so let's dig in here. As I understand it, your journey to becoming an entrepreneur is the ultimate love story. Tell us more a little about a little bit about that. Sure. I, you know, I think that holistically, if I look at the influences in my life and the decisions that I've made, they've always been rooted in love, love for people, love or observation of others. For example, mm. even though I had no clue in 2005 that um, 
I would start a business. My grandmother is an entrepreneur. My mother's an entrepreneur. My hmm. uh, sister is an entrepreneur. So there was always, I guess, in my mind, the example. But the reason that I think about my founding of Heritage Link Brands as an ultimate love story is because I literally got married in April of 2005, stumbled upon a wine festival in South Africa in September that totally changed my mind just because I loved the way that this wine tasted. Um, mm. So much so, so that I convinced my husband, again, we hadn't even been married six months, that this wine was so good that there was a market for telling the stories of these incredible producers alongside with this mm. great wine mm-hmm. to what I thought were the masses beyond just South Africa. Um, and then the ultimate love story, because less than a month after deciding, okay, you know what, we're going to start this business, which was October of 05, I found out I was pregnant with my first of what is now three children. So wow. it, it, it was all rooted in feeling, wanting, experiencing love. Yes. And, it, and you know, kudos to you for following your heart in the moment. Because I mean, okay, all right, getting married, that's a big life change, but also we're going to start, you know, you could have started a business anywhere, but you decide to start your business in, in connection with South Africa on the other side of the globe. It just, and, and then of course, embracing parenthood. So um, let's just say when people out there, I guess, I guess to me, I, I look at someone who's weighing opportunity versus uh, life disruption. What do you say to someone who, who's maybe having their own moment of, man, I can pursue this, but this is going to be seriously disruptive <laughs> out of my life? Well, I feel like I was in some ways, my journey as a human being has always been um, propelled mm. through disruption, um, whether it was intentional or not intentional. And so because of these, challenges in all honesty that I faced, it has pursued or, or presented a mindset that I I just have and approach hmm. my living of life, whether it's work, whether it's professional, whether it's civic, I live it with purpose and as if it could all be gone tomorrow. And hmm. the reason I wow. think I have such and 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 I'm sure I'm probably not um everyone doesn't live so radically in the moment, but, um, I have lived an interesting journey as the daughter of a single parent who, um, who experienced loss very early in life. My father passed away before my second birthday. So as I was coming up and I would see my friends with their fathers, I had to come to terms with grief and adversity of not being like the other kids and not having a father and figuring out, okay, so now what? What are you going to do with it? Um, similarly, in college, I my sophomore year of college, I was driving to go visit friends, for, uh, leaving from Stanford to go visit friends that attended UC Berkeley, which is about a 45-minute drive to the East Bay. And on our way, I was unexpectedly cut off by another car, swerved to avoid it, and ended up flipping over the divider, skidding the opposite way, the length of a football field, Mm. two of my girlfriends were ejected from the car and one of them passed away instantly. 
this is as a 19 year old having the magnitude of number one, losing a dear friend and what comes with the pain and, and heartbreak of that, um, feeling badly about my friend who was still recuperating and then mm -hmm. just trying to make sense of, well, why did all of this happen? And why not me, to be honest with you? Why, why was my life spared and not my girlfriend's? And so again, in these moments where people that, you know, holistically have been of impact in my life, um, have been lost, that has propelled me not intentionally again, as I, as because it's not like I knew this starting off, but it was really this moment of needing an epiphany to tell me, okay, what are you going to do now that your life has been spared? Why are you here? You better mm -hmm. make sure that you make it count at every juncture and point. So my advice to people around opportunity and weighing that against the disruption is number one, go for what you care about, what you love, or what jars you to the point of it feeling uncomfortable because it's in those moments that you will be able to have the tenacity to persevere, to do it to the best of what your, your, your natural abilities compel you to do. To mitigate the disruption, I think it's important to make sure that you keep your eyes wide open and understand what, what the risks are so that you can try to manage them and or manage them out of the equation. Mm -hmm. Well, I got a chill here in both those. Um, about your father and then about the car accident and how you, how you interpreted those moments as really like a wake up call or a, a, not at two years old, but like a call to action of in your life to, to be, it just sounds so proactive and to really, I, I just, I was hearing the terms carpe diem, seize the day, seize the moment. And I don't want to get too far ahead of us in the interview. But I watched the clip, I believe it was a CBS clip uh, with you when you're in South Africa and you're going through the wines and they make it, they don't tell, I didn't see that part of the story. Uh, the, I, didn't, I didn't get all the prequel stuff that you just shared with me. But now, because <laughs> they make it a little bit look like, you know, you're trying wine. You're like, oh, this is great wine. What this is, what this is happening in South Africa where the only 2% of the, of the winemakers are actually African, you know, like a uh, black African there. And then you took action on it, but knowing the backstory, I guess it, it, it fills in a gap for me of how someone would respond like you did. And just, I mean, am I filling that gap incorrectly? Cause I feel like most people would say, you know, this business plan doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Like, <laughs> How are we going to, because you're competing against wines from all over the world in the U.S. And it just seems like a big, big hill to climb. Oh, yeah. Um, Especially when you think about the fact that most successful wine brands and, and, and vineyards that produce wine under their you know, portfolio of, of uh, wines, they're sometimes fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth generation. So wow. I entered into this business with not only no entrepreneurial experience, nor did my husband, but again, that's where the love comes in. He loved me enough to allow my idealistic vision to sway him into 
um, relinquishing all of his life savings and all of mine to put forth in this venture. Mm -hmm. But if I had to really be honest, I think it was just, it was a buildup to who I am as a person. Because even when I think about the step right before coming to South Africa, it was as a result of, at the time, working for a company, a nonprofit actually called the Council on International Educational Exchange, better known as CIEE. Mm. And every year since the end of World War II, CIEE has acted as an agent for the Department of State to help issue visas for young people to either study abroad, Americans leaving to go abroad, or for people from all around the world to come to the United States. And we would issue almost 50,000 visas a year. And when I started in this role, I was the director of marketing, which was fabulous because in a four-year period, I probably visited 45 countries. But at about week six or seven on the job, I decided to look at the data. What countries are we issuing visas to? Where are we spending our time and energy? And I remember at the time, roughly 80% of our student population, our young people population was being imported. I use that word loosely, obviously, imported from Europe. And there was probably a split between 10% from Asia, 10% from Latin America, but there were less than 50 people out of 50,000 who were coming from the entire continent of Africa, which represents 54 countries. So it was in that moment, reviewing the data, that I had the epiphany to share with my boss at the time, a lovely gentleman by the name of Stephen Trubach, who's a graduate of Harvard from the late 60s. I said, hey, if our goal as CIEE is to promote cultural understanding, especially in a post 9-11 world, we really should be bringing more Africans into the country to tell or to experience mm -hmm. America. And this was right after um, Al-Shabaab had pledged allegiance to Al-Qaeda and they were operating in West Africa. We had had not in the too distant future, there had been Black Hawk Down in Somalia. The U.S. Embassy had been bombed in Kenya. So it just felt like the right move. And it was a journey to then um, work with him where he said, yeah, let's open up a market. And South Africa was the market that I was there to open up right mm -hmm. before going to that wine festival. Wow. And you see, and that sparked a chain of events uh, that has now kind of gone down in history, I guess, is <laughs> pretty, <laughs> you know, pretty big moment. Um, one of the things, and, and this, I, I, I want to tee this question up a little bit. Uh, so in doing a little, a little more research on you, there are two people that have gone on record, uh, many people singing, singing your praises, but there were two, and I picked up on a couple of words in there. So one is that we talked, we were talking about Pame Bassey, who's the chief learning off chief learning and diversity officer over at Kraft Heinz. And she introduced us. So, and she has a great episode out there. Y'all can go check that out. Um, so she's, she says, Selena is an exceptionally talented innovator who's been a driving force behind the investment transformation within the modern South African wine industry. She has quite a strong strategic mind and always demonstrates a way of looking at things that is different than most. And then it goes on. Okay. And then someone people, people may have heard of magic Johnson uh, says the business expertise of Selena is unique. 
as a successful entrepreneur, she will bring a diligent mindset with a vision to think differently and ultimately propel our organization forward. So two people that are, you know, business, you know, heavyweights out there, they are referring to you as someone, a leader who thinks differently. Uh, what is going on with that? Why do you know, and you may not know what, I mean, what's your perspective, I should say, on people speaking out on, on and, and say you are a leader who thinks differently? Huh. So, well, I am grateful to both of those incredible leaders for showing <laughs> such a kind. Not too bad. Hanging <laughs> <laughs> out with they, good people. Okay. I, yes. I admire them both. Um, I'm grateful for the lessons that they have both taught me, and there have been many. Um, I my philosophy on leadership is one that, um, as as the individual who's responsible for it all, the only way that you can do that successfully is by being a leader that is um, committed to servitude. And so I think servant leadership is underrated. And ultimately the work that we do as leaders, it's, it's not really that hard. It's actually, it's not rocket science. I believe that on some level, we, we just need to look at our approach to business from the vantage point of not just shareholders, right? There's a lot of discussion, especially in corporate environments about shareholder return, return on equity. But I'm actually of the belief that um, stakeholder capitalism is the more sound, more fair, more eco-friendly of models to approach because it takes a village to get it done. That means that first and foremost, your employees, your talent, your people, the ones that are really showing and doing the magic every day have to know that they are cared for as individuals and then also for the talents and value that they bring to the organization. So I believe that as the leader, it is important to take care of your people. That Mm -hmm. means providing a livable wage, that means understanding and feeling comfortable about compensation and benefits and having a performance and development plan that allows for them to realize their very best, whether that's personally or professionally. Hmm. And obviously being there to be in service to the client. I mean, those are pretty much neck and neck, but where I think things somewhat fall off the the rails, so to Mm -hmm, speak, mm -hmm. where you start to see institutionally status quo behaviors that do not grow or lift is when you don't or forget to include community. And within Mm -hmm. that community, that could include your tier two suppliers. Those are the the people that you are contracting, whether the accountants, whether it's the landscapers that are doing your workplace experience, but it is important to be intentional about the choices and decisions that one makes when doing business or just living life in generally. Um, Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I think that approach, meaning it's not me just focused on the customers. It's not just me focused on one particular stakeholder, but holistically thinking about the ecosystem in which we live and what m- 
what my part is uh, in that, whether it's um, as the owner of Heritage Link Brands or the president of Sodexo Magic, that is incredibly key. Stakeholder capitalism. That's the first time I've heard that word, but it makes a lot of sense. And I like how you're defining stakeholders beyond the, the uh, customer or beyond the investor. You even said tier two suppliers. So you're thinking about stakeholders in our business, Heritage Link Brands, Sexo Magic is like you're looking out beyond, I think where a lot of people uh, never quite, uh, they just never get that far. And they're thinking, it's almost like looking at the entire the entire environment or stratosphere, or I don't know exactly what I'm thinking about. But like you said, use the word community and it, and it exists beyond your customer. Reminds me of a funny, funny story. I was, I was just out of college and I was sitting in a meeting and the CFO walked in and he was, uh, he was upset about something. And he said, why are we here? And he was, and he was pointing at each person in the room and he came to me and I just was like, everybody had said random things. I just kind of put my hands up in the air. And I'm like, I don't know why we're here. <laughs> and he says to maximize shareholder value. And I didn't forget that. And he came to me later and he did this over and over again. This was back like early two thousands. And it was just like regurgitation for me it's like, to maximize shareholder value. And yes, you want to maximize shareholder value, but since then, you know, we had this idea of uh, in a stakeholder capitalism that you brought up. And I've also heard uh, triple net bottom line or triple, you know, like people thinking about sustainability and, mm -hmm. and profitability, you know, together and, and how, how we impact things beyond this. And so I really love this idea and I love how you're attaching, you're thinking differently or leading differently or this is a different perspective you bring as attached to thinking about people beyond, beyond just the customer. And what a perfect example to Heritage Link Brands, because it's a supply chain situation, ultimately, right? Getting wines from there to here, but you're making relationships on all, all fronts. If you've, so people, she may have a leader out there right now who's listening and they're like, you know what, this idea of, of of stakeholder capitalism sure to sound good, but I'm working for a fortune 50 company and I gotta, I gotta think about delivering for the bottom line. What advice do you have for them if they'd like to start thinking in this way, but they're just kind of stuck in, Hey, I've got to deliver for wall street first. Oh, absolutely. I'd, I'd love to answer this, but before I do, I want to just share a couple of statistics that yep. I think have inspired me to have this mindset around stakeholder capitalism. Okay. Um, there are a couple. The first, which startled me to no end, I heard in 2016, the investment bank Credit Suisse partnered with Brandeis University, and they concluded after evaluating the average white household to the average black household, it would take at least 226 years for the two to be on par with one another. I'm not talking about the uber rich like the Bill Gates or the Warren Buffetts, but just every other American out there. And I thought, oh my gosh, 226 years. I've got three children. That's not possible. We've got to figure out a way to leapfrog or accelerate or create some mm. 
some kind of event, a disruptive event that helps us skip that. So that was one. The other one that I heard during the reckoning that we experienced during the global pandemic. And then when we look at the moment that now people are calling kind of that George Floyd effect, um, mm-hmm. there was a lot of research alongside what what's needed to bring equity into the, into the equation. Um, and it was concluded, I believe Amazon did the research that there are less than 40 companies in the entire country that are black owned that have revenues in excess of a hundred million dollars. Well, Sodexo Magic is one of them. Sodexo Magic is one, but again, you know, so, magic. So so play that statistic back back for us. What was less, it? Again? Less than 40 black owned companies have revenues in excess of a hundred million. In a country where there are 47 million black people. So when we think about institutional structures, right? If we, if we look at the origins of our institution, it's clear to understand why it would be, but I'm a solutions oriented kind of gal. So this is where my advice to the Fortune 100 um, mm-hmm. listener comes in. And also it is rooted in now 17 years of what I would call supply chain diversification. Uh, maybe more than that, when you count the work that I did with CIEE to bring more Africans in the country, that's definitely supply chain diversification. Um, and now what is also important to know is that in 2008, three years after founding Heritage Link Brands, we became a supplier to Sodexo, which is one of the parents partners of Sodexo mm-hmm. Magic. And so, being able to have that experience of being a small company that is inserting itself into this big, huge supply chain of Sodexo, which has 400,000 employees across 70 countries, right? So if I wanted to know what can I do to be a part of the change, I think the first thing to do is to pick your stakeholder, you know, pilot, pick your stakeholder. Where do you feel like you have the most power to be an influencer? So whether that is you as, let's say you're a manager or a director who is looking to hire someone new on your team, you may encourage your HR partner to introduce a diverse slate of candidates that may be worthwhile for you to consider. Let's say you work in procurement and you're looking to bring in a new supplier for managed services or for a new product, I would consider making sure that in your evaluation set, you consider diverse suppliers. If you are at the level of, let's say, a president or C-suite member, you may want to consider the opportunity to partner with tier two suppliers that can bring greater value that people perceive diverse suppliers will cost them more. It doesn't have to be that way. There is this perception that it does or no differently than if you stay at the peninsula versus if you stay at the holiday Inn. the peninsula may cost you more. So I think it all depends on the value and service. Now, let's say you're a board director um, or you are looking for board members, consider diverse candidates because 
all of the empirical data tells us that those companies that are diverse outperform those that don't. So it's only wanting to build a stronger business with better results. Get a simple tool to approximate your cost of turnover in 10 seconds or less. Right now, go to benfanning.com slash turnover. Did you know the average cost of turnover is $235,975 per employee per year? If you're like most leaders, you don't know your number. Go to benfanning.com slash turnover right now and download the simple tool to start getting a handle on this catastrophic cost. A great playbook there for people of all levels in your organization. Uh, and when you say, one of the things that, that struck me, um, wow, this is a big call to action for a lot of, a lot of leaders out there. Supply chain diversification. Supply chain diversification. So what we're talking about here is, so maybe break that down a little bit further. So on what supply chain diversification is, um, and just I want everybody to walk away with a really clear idea of, of it there. Sure. So I think about things in the context of titles and roles that are, are often used in the corporate ecosystem, but even in nonprofit mm -hmm. spaces, they may be called different things or may not even be thought about deliberately or intentionally, but you do hear often, and especially post-2020, the of, about the appointment of more supplier diversity leaders. We want more supplier diversity, but those roles oftentimes can be stifled because there's no power to affect the business in those roles. I have not yet met one of these leaders that controls a PL statement. So that means that they still would have to get permission mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to include more of a particular um, type of company if you're looking to diversify supply, supply chains, or in the case of um, talent, a lot of times supplier diversity leaders are asked to help um, operators identify talent or think through what their strategic plan could be yeah. to be more diverse or to create a more diverse working environment. In the case of supply chain diversification, not, not people don't talk about it. So it's, it's, it's new in terms of thinking about the need of supply mm -hmm. chain diversification as a catalyst for closing the gender wealth gaps that we know exist, the diversity generally that we know lacks um, a presence in mm -hmm. very strong corporate powerful environments. So the notion of diversifying the supply chain means we are going to take on an, as an objective, a set of goals that allow for us to increase the amount of business that we do with diverse suppliers. Diverse is very big. That includes small business, medium business, women, the veterans, differently abled, obviously. Mm -hmm. We're so, not just going to pick the same three mega companies to do business with. It's not always easy to do business with smaller companies. Uh, sometimes it is, but usually, you know, they're not set up in the system. 
it creates, you know, people look at, oh, I got to add more suppliers and all that. But yeah, I, I like the idea of diversification because one of the things is the right, it's, we have a, as a society, it's the right thing to do. But I can definitely tell you from what I've seen, when we have a global disruption, some companies, sometimes the smaller companies are the ones that can pivot the quickest because they're not beheld to certain systems or other kinds of big relationships that prevent them from pivoting to support the uh, bigger, bigger clients. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a small business, but I saw it play <laughs> out. I saw it play out, you know, during the pandemic. And so I think it, it, it can work. It can definitely work uh, it, to the company's benefit in a lot of different ways. If you take a really thoughtful approach. Now, you, when you were in out, when you were setting up this, this, this extremely interesting African wine business and looking back on it, what was a leadership lesson that you picked up along the way there that you think others could benefit from? Oh, when starting the business, a leadership lesson, this is a simple one, but one that I think it's always important to reinforce is cultivate, nurture, manage your relationships. Because when I think about what it took to get the business started, what I think about in terms of even the business's current sustainability, it has always come down to the people. It always comes down to the people, whether it's in nurturing and cultivating the relationships, which in the early days came with no salary or no compensation that startup era of, hey, we believe in this and we're going to take mm -hmm. equity and, and trust that this equity will turn into something, you know, whether it's cultivating with them, whether it's cultivating the relationships that you had with former friends who have now risen into power at some of the companies that you hope and are looking at as prospective clients. Stay in touch with people. Send I, I send Christmas cards. Believe it or not, Christmas cards are an mm. incredibly strong customer acquisition driver for um, for for me and mine. <laughs> so, so what's your what's your secret sauce for your Christmas cards? Do you have a certain like you do family photos, family vacation, oh, yeah. empowering message? What 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 do you do? I show the kids. The kids are the winners. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Show the kids. And, and you're, and you're saying, are you using like tiny prints or something like that? Or are you writing the handwritten notes or? No, I mean, I am using, it depends on who's giving me the best discount that year. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, but it does, it really comes down to the, the leadership lesson was just managing relationships. Mm -hmm. I don't burn bridges come with positive intentionality because the way that you interpret, especially as an, as I think about the, the significant challenge that I've had as an entrepreneur when dealing with people that mm -hmm. only know corporate environments is they, they will never know the pain that you feel when you lose a deal or when something impacts working capital. Thank you. <laughs> I came from corporate for years. I worked for fortune fifties and with my own business. Ooh, yeah. It's a different deal. It, you get pushed for another 15 days pay terms. You're like, ouch. Oh, yeah. And so, so much. <laughs> corporations can go 70, 90 yeah. days and they can pay you on that 69th day with ease. Yeah, right? yeah no and, problem. Yep. And so it's, I think that there's a, 
if 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 there are corporate listeners maybe lending an ear of empathy and and, mm. and having grace because one thing that I did want to share uh, and you alluded to this when you described the perception around small suppliers having to get them registered it's a pain in the butt when I think about our business our largest deal of 2021 came as a result of a diverse supplier introduction. So they can open up and be the idea behind diversification means that really you're getting more than you would normally get because you already know what you're getting from the same old three. You already know, and you know, it's going to cost you more to push out a little bit of anything extra. So why not think in a way that is more agile that mm-hmm. gives you the opportunity to be bold and have greater impact, knowing what we know about the gaps that exist. I think that's where Sodexo Magic becomes yeah. a really good case for what's possible. Think about it this way. Our parent partners, Sodexo and Magic Johnson Enterprises, also known as MJE, they had the vision for this. 17 years ago, when no one else was thinking about it, they realized if the data says diverse business operates more effectively, let's try to do that right here and 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 show the magic of it. And what was also beautiful is that Mr. J, before he became a Laker, before he had already started high school, when he was in middle school, he had a job as a janitor. And so... When I think about the work we do at Sodexo Magic, which includes food service, it's integrated facilities management, which includes custodial, janitorial, groundskeeping. This is this is personal. This is personal. Every day someone is out there doing their job to take care of the kids. This is why the kids pull at the heart, because we all do this in service to something. We might as well make the work that we do in the way that we're able to influence, no matter how small, mm. let's make it count when we can. Mm. Well, I love that. And I mean, I got to ask, uh, how did you end up working for Magic Johnson? Because that's, <laughs> that seems like, it just seems so cool. I love so, Magic Johnson. So anyway. Yes. <laughs> so I have, I have, um, a client and a, and my parent partner Sodexo to thank for that. Um, the client is American Airlines. Back in 2008, American Airlines invited me to host a wine tasting um, and tell the story of what was happening in South Africa. And really, we were leveraging wine as a medium through which to to observe the progress that happens when you democratize a country, which is pretty neat. There's a lot packed in there. Mm. And it just so happened at that at this same employee event, it was an American employees or American Airlines employee resources group event. And it just so happened that Mr. Johnson was the keynote at this illustrious event. And I, what I do remember about that day was Everyone, including me, we were just mesmerized by him and his ability to impart words of leadership mm-hmm. wisdom on all of us. Um, and then they just kind of came back to the back of the room to get either their red or white drink for me. <laughs> but it was that chance moment coupled with a call that I received from one of the Sodexo Magic board members. And 
um, on that board are members from SIDEXO and from MJE. One of those board members really felt that um, my ability to tell the story or understand the plight of diverse suppliers was a strategic imperative for the growth engine that is Sodexo Magic for mm. the enterprise. And so I remember um, thinking, I, I can see this because what I do for heritage link brands should be done for all suppliers that are diverse and where the average spend with diverse suppliers in the United States with the average corporation is less than, believe it or not, similar to South Africa, less than 2%. With Sodexo Magic, we spend over 40% with diverse suppliers. And so it is critical to our differentiation and the importance mm. of cultivating that relationship with tier two now makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. And you're walking the talk. You're encouraging other people and you're doing it there with Sodexo Magic and you already have done it with them. Uh, and it's saying, so breaking, so it sounds like they, a, a key leader noticed your storytelling ability or your ability to, ability to convey a persuasive message, perhaps a, as a super skill, would you, which, which camp, a super, uh, storytelling or what, like, what's the skill set that they noticed uh, uh, in you in that moment? I think, well, I do enjoy communicating with different people. I feel like communication is the key to, to all. Um, but ultimately, I think it's just the business results. Are you able to deliver or or not deliver? And I am lucky and fortunate to have been in environments, whether it's, you know, stepping on the Stanford's campus at age 17 and being exposed and having, gosh, I've had a, a job since I turned 14 years old. So taking a very strong work ethic coupled with being exposed to excellence all day long at Stanford, excellence all day long at Harvard and living a life where I strive and teach my children. If you're going to do it, try to do it to the best of your ability. Mm. Not saying that you will always win first place or always be the best, but you have to always work towards your personal best. Um, and so I think it's that, I think it's being very results driven and, also believing that it's important to be an agile leader. Like you cannot just stay wedded to one thing if the market's telling you to do something different. Um, no differently than you can't keep changing your strategy all of the time, um, but that's where the tactics come in. So if you have a very purpose-driven mindset, then you will pick the right strategy to guide you as you move with agility through what mm -hmm. life presents to us on any given day. Wow. And the, the ability to persevere, you know, what comes up for me and man, I'm, I'm kind of bringing it back around to your origin story. When you talked about, mm -hmm. you know, losing your dad at two. And I think back to the book, David and Goliath, Malcolm Gladwell, mm -hmm. if you read that book, but they, he talks about the research behind you know, children that lose parents at, at a young age and how that is one of the most difficult things that a, that a child can go through yet. So many of the people that have that, that moment rise to do amazing things. And it's just, there's not a lot of explanation as to why per se, but 
I think I know. Okay. I do. I do. Um, because Ben, as you were bringing that up, you immediately made me think about uh, something that I learned very early when um, my husband and I began importing wine from Nelson Mandela's daughter and, and granddaughter, who created a, a wine brand in honor of the extraordinary Mandela legacy. And the brand is called House of Mandela. Mm. And as Queenie Mandela, Nelson Mandela's granddaughter, um, told me the history of, of, of their beautiful and very royal family, it actually made sense to me how Nelson Mandela, who is my personal hero, he is the person, when I think about who is the person you most admire in the world, living or not living, Nelson Mandela, hands down, has been like my number one since I was in high school and he was still in prison. Um, and what I've learned is that when he was, well, first of all, he is the firstborn son of a chief. And at the age of eight years old, his father passed away and he was sent to live with another tribe and to learn under another chief so that he could prepare to one day come back to his village and, and, and leave. However, a trip, and I don't even know the circumstances of the trip, led him into the big city, into Johannesburg, where he realized there was a bigger problem happening on a larger scale that was touching way more people than just his community. And that led him onto a path that we now all know and can certainly appreciate. But I think what happens in the, that moment when as a child, you were faced with that type of devastation whenever you learn that news and you learn they're never coming back like it is so finite and there is nothing you can change about it it creates a resilience and a fortitude that is almost out of survival right like you can't just kill over and die right with them no matter how badly it feels so it 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 creates this resiliency that i think for better or for worse prepares you for whatever else happens in life because now you know like it can't be that bad Oof. resilience out of yeah. survival yeah. and not to make it sound so gloom and doom because I, I know that these are heavy topics but i mean at the core that's where the love comes back in right like having a spirit that is focused on what you passionately care about whatever it is whoever you are that's the stuff that keeps you going. Yes. Yes. I love that. And so finishing, you know, starting to, I mean, I could, I've got a lot more questions. We're not going to get to them today. <laughs> the second one. I'll come second back you. <laughs> Do So I, I got to ask you too. So we, we, we covered a lot of great topics today, but the expectations are quite high for wine recommendations on this podcast. People have been listening now. They're probably expecting a couple of, uh, South African wine recommendations that are just going to blow their minds. So oh, no pressure. Okay. So, I mean, first I'm going to say if, if you love South African wines, I am a big, big fan of anything from the seven sisters vineyards and in full disclosure, my, uh, we have an equity interest in the seven sisters vineyards, which is based out of Stellenbosch, South Africa. It is hmm. believe it or not the only black female owned a vineyard in South Africa today. So there's what? still a lot of work that needs to be done to wow. transform. Um, but they do a beautiful Pinotage. They do a beautiful 
uh, Estate, Sauvignon Blanc. Um, but then there are some personal favorites that are very easily accessible um, and that are actually based out of uh, California. I am a very, very, very big fan of the Brown Estate, which happens to be the only Black-owned family vineyard in Napa. Um, but they make some extraordinary wines. I think the one that stands out right now to me is their 2019 Recluse, which is a Zinfandel. It is so yummy. And they're, they're Zinfandels. Recluse, are- like, like the spider. Yes. Or hide someone hiding. Okay. Either. Either. (laughs) Right. Brown estate. Okay. Um, There's any of their Zinfandels. I mean, they've got really, really good wines. They've also got this cool red blend that's very price. And all of their wines are are, are reasonable. But I think like the uh, Recluse uh, Zinfandel is like 65. And they've got this beautiful red blend called Chaos Theory um, that. I don't know what's in it, but it's really good. And that's probably, um, you know, the $40 mark. Well, I, I love this. So it's important. I, and I, man, we were bouncing around because there's so many, every time you, you share something, I'm like, my mind is going off a lot of different directions on where we could go with it. But for the listeners, one of the things that we covered today was how, you know, why, one reason why wine is so dominated by, by white the white communities because it's generationally handed down, right? Like they'll have to start a vineyard and they'll hand that down to their family. And so that's not really available to people to just break into it very easily. And whereas in South Africa, uh, how, how does that play out differently? Were, they, were these vineyards that were not owned by anybody? No. Or- so they have a very similar history to the United States in that, okay. When, um, during the, the, the 1600s, when there was, you know, there was the Spanish Inquisition and there was a lot of persecution that was happening with the Catholic Church, um, non-Catholic French people and Dutch people, also known as Huguenots, were invited to have free passage courtesy of the Dutch East India Company if they might consider helping to settle a new land called South Africa and other parts of Africa. It was a colonial moment. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the wine industry, believe it or not, is very comparable to the cotton industry here in the States and that slave labor was um, Mm. procured to be able to create these industries. And in South Africa, which their Mm. wine industry dates back to the early mid 1600s, um, Black South Africans were the ones that were planting the vines and toiling the soil and producing okay. the wines, although they were not obviously the owners no differently than Blacks here mm-hmm. picking cotton. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so that land transitions happened more quickly there in their, in their wine country than it has here in the U.S., or is it a similar, similar. fraction? Similar. Two percent Yes, South Africa became a democracy in 1990. So imagine there was yeah. no real ownership of land apartheid. that was allowed mm-hmm. during apartheid. And so then you figure it had been about 11 years of freedom and 11 years for Blacks to amass enough capital to purchase vineyard land, which I don't care where you are in the world, that's some of the most expensive land. And the fact that there's still just one, there are two black family owned vineyards and, and many more cooperatives. I would say they're probably about 10 or so cooperatives, but 
Black female owned, there's only one. Wow. So there's a lot of work that we yes. can all do in terms of being consumers yeah. and supporting brands. HeritageLinkBrands.com will also give you some some tips and tricks and clues on what you might be able to to do to support. But um, yeah, yeah, we'll make sure to put that. There are going to be a lot of links in the uh, show notes for this. Uh, just watch Sugar Man. Have you seen this this uh, documentary? I have not. Okay, I'm, I'll I'm write it down. Probably one of the coolest documentaries. Searching for Sugar Man. And it's probably one of the coolest, it came out in 2012. It's one of the coolest documentaries I've ever seen, but it involves South Africa. Wow. There, there's a musician in Detroit who does two albums. He is Hispanic back in the uh, releasing his albums, like in the seventies. And it wasn't the, the, these albums didn't do very well at all. And he's like demoing houses. Meanwhile, oh, wow. a bootleg of his album goes to South Africa during apartheid. And it just catches on and the bootleg spreads. He becomes bigger than Elvis Presley and the Beatles in Africa. And a lot of his music, they're interviewing a lot of people who were listening to one of his albums during apartheid. And they felt like it became one of the voices of apartheid movement. Of course, this guy had no clue. Wow. His stuff, he was just sitting there demoing houses in Detroit. Anyway, it has a really cool journey anyway i won't spoil it entirely but let's just say he does go on tour eventually in south africa but he while st- he's still it. ignored here I his name is rodriguez yeah anyway we'll put that in the show notes. Well, so last thing because i know we got to wrap up here parting thought for the listeners parting thought wow parting thoughts love one another it's life is life is as simple or as difficult as you allow it to be spread more love not hate i love it we'll spread the love y'all have a great day thanks selena thank you if you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting do this before you do anything else head over to benfanning.com quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book the quit alternative the blueprint for creating the job you love without quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.